Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Next is powered by the New England News Collaborative, eight public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. I'm John Dankosky. Thanks so much for joining us. Almost 10 months after Hurricane Maria hit Puerto Rico, communities around the island are still recovering. Some have it bad, while others have it even worse. Connecticut Public Radio's Jeff Cohen has reported from the island three times and recently returned. He's been telling the stories of people who consider both Puerto Rico and New England home. He found one of those people who's been reaching out to help his neighbors. You only have to ask Ramon Luis Morales once to know that the trauma of Hurricane Maria is still fresh. Maria destroyed the whole roof, destroyed my cars, destroyed my life. (laughs) It was not easy. He says FEMA denied him assistance to rebuild, so he's stuck waiting for help. Until he gets it, he sleeps with his wife and his son in just one room. Often his blue tarp still leaks. Some days there's power, but on this day there wasn't. On a day when all of Puerto Rico was watching the remnants of a tropical storm about to pass through. We just worry any minute we're going to lose whatever we had left. And it's not much, but at least it's ours, you know. And when you have a house, that's one thing I learned in life from my parents. You have everything. You don't need nothing else. Just a roof over your head. You don't have, you're not going to have no problem. You're going to survive. But you, when you lose that, that's the moment that you know that everything is loose. So you'd think that on a day like this one, Morales would have been at his house with his family, but he wasn't. No, no, this is uh, somebody I'm helping to fix his roof and his walls because he was worse than me. We met over the course of a couple days at the home of Manuel Antonio Perez Rosa, who goes by Tony. He lives in Manati, 40 or so minutes west of San Juan. His house is a small wood frame structure with a metal roof, half of which Maria and its fallen trees destroyed. Since the storm wrecked his bed, Perez Rosa slept for months on a too small love seat by the door with the back of the house open to the elements. We got the blue tarp that, you know, when it rains, we don't get wet. But he used to get wet. That's why we say let's help him. Perez Rosa says he was also denied FEMA help at first, but through another FEMA program, he was able to get a few thousand dollars to make temporary essential home repairs. But there's no money for labor. That's where volunteers come in. John Biamil Casanova is helping coordinate the work with other volunteer nonprofits. Is helping those that were totally forgotten, helping those that were totally desperate. So he says this is neighbors helping neighbors, which is important, especially as the hurricane season progresses. He says there's still a lot of need and a lot of anguish. What if? What's going to happen? How are we going to manage this, this season? We, we know that we're very resilient, and we know that we can take as many hits as we can, but it's the anguish, it's the desperation, it's that sense of... I can't control. The rains came heavy the next day. Volunteer Morales was back at Perez Rosa's house getting to work. 
the first day I clean up, I strip everything down. He's running out of two by fours, so Morales starts by finding and cutting what he can to frame out the windows. We cut the piece on top. Perez Rosa says he's grateful. Maria wrecked his house and killed his chickens. All the ceiling fall down under my house and everything like that. I lost everything in my house inside too, the clothes and everything. As Morales works, he remembers his own Maria experience. Three days after it was over, he was running short on food and water. That's when he made it to an emergency medical facility and found help. He gets emotional just thinking about it. I told I was in Rhode Island National Guard uh, in the 80s in Providence. And he said, oh, thank you for your service. You know, you feel good. Which is to say that when he was desperate for help, someone gave it to him. Now it's his turn. Yeah, because he's living worse than I. <laughs> you know, if you don't take charge, what is the reason to be in a civilization? <laughs> you know, this is one thing that you have to help each other. Especially, he says, after a storm as violent as Maria. This is not a joke. And not, not too many people took it, you know, literally. Now they know you don't mess with Mother Nation. Not anymore. Morales says it's a lesson no one can ignore. That was Connecticut Public Radio's Jeff Cohen reporting. For more stories about Puerto Rico after Hurricane Maria, visit Connecticut Public Radio's series The Island Next Door. You can find a link to it on our website, nextnewengland.org. In coastal communities across our region, residents are grappling with big questions related to sea level rise, how to protect themselves, their homes, and their communities. WBUR reporter Simone Rios takes us to Plum Island off of Massachusetts, where residents are taking matters into their own hands, and they're doing it in very different ways, a contrast in what designers call green versus gray engineering. On the northern tip of Plum Island, a few dozen volunteers sink shovels into a mound of sand. They're digging 10,000 holes to plant 20,000 stalks of beach grass. The grass will nourish a berm put in place after a series of devastating storms over the winter. Local activist Vern Ellis says it's the only thing environmental officials will allow him to use, sand and beach grass. He knows it's an effort worthy of a Don Quixote, but he hopes the beach grass buys his little La Mancha a bit of time. The grass um, grows really, really deep roots, three, four feet down, and it spreads. And it basically holds the sand in place. And this stuff is really resilient. It could get buried up to about a foot of sand and it will come back up through it. Ellis and his neighbors live on Reservation Terrace, a dozen shoreline houses at a flashpoint in Plum Island's struggle against erosion. He organized his neighbors to buy and plant the beach grass in the hundred feet of sand that separates their houses from the ocean. Ellis says the grass planting comes in response to a massive movement in the sand at the mouth of the Merrimack River, which opens to the Atlantic Ocean. Well, it's kind of funny because when we first moved here, there was 400 more feet of dunes out into the river. So you're not going back 50 years in family history, you're going back five years. Yeah, yeah. The cause of the erosion is a matter of debate. Some residents blame a jetty repair project conducted by the Army Corps of Engineers five years ago. 
the Army Corps attributes the erosion to natural cycles. Regardless of the cause, Vern Ellis and others on Reservation Terrace say four-fifths of their beach has been washed away. Up near the New Hampshire border, Plum Island is an island of sand, one of 681 so-called barrier beaches in Massachusetts, with ocean on one side and a bay, marsh, or other body of water on the other. It's a landform in flux, and as Ellis and his neighbors are witnessing, not just in geological time. Yeah, it's coming. The erosion is coming. But, you know, we only have, you know, 20, 30 more years here on planet Earth and might as well enjoy it while we can. Plum Island is a case study in how Massachusetts communities are reacting to a changing ocean. The prospect of rising sea levels makes it all the more critical. A recent report found 90,000 homes along the coast could face chronic flooding by the end of the century, some of them in the coming decades. Vern Ellis's beach grass is what's considered green infrastructure, a tread-lightly approach trying to enhance and complement the natural environment. Others on Plum Island are committed to the more permanent, hardened solutions of walls and barriers, known as gray infrastructure. My name is Bob Connors. Bob Connors and Vern Ellis are a yin and yang of DIY coastal resiliency. Where Ellis lives on a public beach, Connors owns the beach in front of his house. Where Ellis received approval from the authorities to plant beach grass, Connors went against the state. He led his neighborhood in constructing massive stone barriers along the beach, known as rip-raps. Connors says he had no choice. So all hell has just broken loose up here. That's Connors back in 2013, talking to Channel 5 as a winter storm pounded his neighborhood. We've got several homes now that have been compromised. One has actually gone in. Uh, it's collapsed onto the beach. And another one to my left, uh, his foundation was just compromised. Connor says the state was threatening to issue huge fines if he and his neighbors went against coastal building rules and put up riprap's in front of their homes. But a storm of political pressure and media scrutiny ensued on behalf of the neighbors, and the state backed down. Government timeline never matches that of Mother Nature. When you're having a natural disaster, if we had tried to go through the normal permitting process and then trying to overcome the, 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 the nays and the yays of whether you should or shouldn't do it, uh, we would have lost probably 40 homes. Five years later, and Connor says the riprap's are doing their job, though that requires constantly replacing rocks dislodged by the waves. Connor says it's worth the tens of thousands of dollars it costs him. He sees his neighborhood as the front line of an existential battle against the ocean. We're trying to defend our property, but in the meantime, we're also defending the infrastructure of our roadway. We're defending the Great Marsh. If, if Plum Island or other barriers weren't here, the Great Marsh would be gone. So where do you decide to draw the line and, and make a stance? Do you have a right to protect your property, to protect your family? Some on Plum Island see Connors as a renegade. What if everybody shirked the rules and built walls along the beach? Others say it's a task of Sisyphus, the Greek king forced to roll a boulder up a hill for eternity, only to see it roll back down. I think while it works, it's absolutely buying time. Greg Moore is an ecologist from the University of New Hampshire. Standing in front of the riprap near Connor's neighborhood, Moore says he teaches his students about the green approach of Ellis and the gray approach of Connor's. This is gray infrastructure, right? This is taking an engineered solution of gray stones and putting it in place. And when we plant dune grass, 
on the dunes, that's our green infrastructure. And you know, perhaps there's a way to marry those two technologies together to protect a system. You, you've got to applaud, I guess, people for doing what they can within their capacity to protect their resource. I, I can't predict if this is going to be sustainable. At some of the locations, it's not been enough. Right now, today, on a beautiful sunny day, it looks like it's working. But Moore says these days, a disastrous storm is always right around the corner for Plum Island. And if the trend doesn't break and the projections of several feet of sea level rise are accurate, Moore says some on Plum Island will have to consider retreat. As a scientist, he sees the cataclysms underway as inevitable. But as someone who's been playing on the island since he was a kid and who spent years doing research here with the blessing of the residents, he's not ready to watch the homes fall into the ocean. When it's your property, when it's your home, it's very hard to separate the cold, say, harsh truth of, of science against, you know, some homeowners here who've lived there their whole life. And it's very difficult to, to give up the fight for them. As for Vern Ellis at the mouth of the Merrimack, he decided to end the fight after the havoc of last winter. It was really hard because we love living there and it's just so beautiful. But after the storms in March, it washed over the dunes into the street all along Reservation Terrace. And that first storm in March, there were eight high tides and it washed over every single high tide. And that's when you know, it's like, this is not good. Ellis plans to sell his dream house later this year, the one he built and moved into five years ago and moved to downtown Newburyport. Of all the differences he shares with Bob Connors, perhaps that's the biggest of all. Connors doesn't plan on going anywhere. As this coastal crisis continues, government will, ad- will adapt, they'll adjust. Will everybody survive? Time will tell. The neighborhoods that are cohesive and act as a group will we'll survive. Those that are splinted and are thinking that everyone else is going to do it for them, um, time will tell. One thing Ellis and Connors agree on, they want the powers that beat to come up with an action plan for Plum Island and put up the money to execute it. But in a country that spends nine-tenths of its flood preparedness dollars after major floods, the piecemeal approach of gray and green infrastructure may be the last stand for Plum Island. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Simon Rios. Coming up, a battle between a millionaire and four small towns in Vermont comes to a close. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Common Sense Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate change and global warming. Up next, we're going to spend some time considering the tensions between those who want to conserve land in our region and those who seek to develop it. A conservation group is preserving a 5,400-acre tract of forest in northern Vermont, and they're creating a new model for how to fund conservation efforts in the process. In addition to being a home for wildlife, this forest will also be used to store carbon to meet greenhouse gas goals set 3,000 miles away in California. As VPR's John Dillon reports, the money from that deal will help the group pay for future restoration projects. It's no surprise that people who work for the Nature Conservancy would be, well, very much into nature. So I'm hearing, uh, this is, I can't get away from my bird background, because there's a black-throated green singing up here. And... Jim Shallow, the conservation director for the Vermont chapter, is describing a new forest project here on Burnt Mountain. But he keeps interrupting himself each time he hears a new bird song. 
white-throated sparrow. Uh, that's, you know, core of its breeding habitat is in the Atlantic northern forest. The birds do provide an auditory example of a key goal for this project. It's an ecological reserve that will help sustain wildlife in the rest of the region. That population can disperse into the broader landscape. So that's another ecological function of this forest is going to be that place where birds and other wildlife will have core habitat that will be resistant or resilient to the disturbances that will come along. And besides growing birds, this wild part of the northern Green Mountains grows trees. And trees take carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere and can store it in their wood for hundreds of years, which makes this parcel valuable in the emerging market for carbon offsets. Companies in California will be able to meet up to 8% of their CO2 reduction goals by buying carbon stored elsewhere. This parcel will be the first in Vermont eligible for that carbon market, and it's expected to earn the conservancy about $2 million over the first 10 years. And we're going to be able to use that income to put into more land conservation. Okay, but first they're actually cutting a few trees. As part of the effort to maintain the land as forever wild, the Nature Conservancy is also restoring a stream called Calavale Brook, whose entire watershed is contained in the Burt Mountain Track. And to improve stream habitat, first you have to drop some trees. What we're doing is trying to restore that component that's been removed from the system, and that's the large wood component. Shane Jaquith is the watershed restoration manager for the Conservancy in Vermont. This stream has cold, clean water, perfect for native brook trout, but it lacks some of the elements that the fish need to really thrive. Jaquith explains that large logs in the water provide shade, structure, habitat, as well as organic matter for the insects that brook trout eat. Basically, they're trying to replicate nature, just on an accelerated time frame. These wood features are sort of steps in the stream, and as the flow plunges over these, these step features, it scours pools on the downstream side, so it, it creates deeper pools. If brook trout are the keystone species in this stream, moose are probably the most charismatic animal roaming these woods. All morning we've been hoping to see one, and it happens as the Conservancy crew drives me back to my car. Where is he? 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 Yes! yes. So awesome. Oh yeah, looks like a big cow. Heather Furman, the Conservancy's Vermont director, passes around a pair of binoculars. On the far side of a pond, the female moose seems to be cooling off in the water. Furman sees the moose as a symbol of both the fragility and resilience of the Vermont landscape. She notes the moose are threatened because of winter ticks that are booming because of climate change. She says projects like Burnt Mountain can help protect other areas for moose and wildlife. You know, we're at a place right now where the economy of conservation is changing. You know, public funding has diminished over the last decade or so. And so new, creative, innovative ways of funding conservation is critically important. And the Conservancy really believes in the power of the market to find new ways to fund conservation. And so that's what we're doing with this carbon project. And the land does not have to be kept forever wild in order to participate in the carbon market. The Nature Conservancy in Maine plans to sell carbon offsets from a large piece of working forest on the St. John's River. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm John Dillon.
In Connecticut, a debate is underway about what to do with a protected stretch of watershed land between a public drinking water supply and an old stone quarry. Tilcon, the quarry's owner, says its mine is running out of rock, so it's petitioning to change state law in the hopes of expanding operations into that protected land. In exchange, when the mining is all done, the company says it will convert the site into a massive reservoir, one that could nearly double the local water storage capacity. But as Connecticut Public Radio's Patrick Scahill found out, the politics of selling that idea could be tougher than squeezing water from a stone. I'm making my way through about 120 acres of rocky watershed, property that bumps right up against an old trap rock quarry owned today by Tilcon. Hiking with me is Jim Goslin. We pass stream beds and bubbling vernal pools, all of which help filter and feed the drinking water supply at the nearby Shuttle Meadow Reservoir. This vernal pool, which had uh, a couple feet of water in it uh, after the uh, winter runoff, uh, connected to that one. So they're all interconnected. It's a part of a, uh, a larger ecosystem. Goslin is one of several hikers with me today from the group Protect Our Watershed CT. As we hike, the group's leader, Paul Zagorski, points out temporary markers that show where a proposed rock quarry could extend. So if this is a boundary line right here, this is either at risk or it's going to be risk and it'll be gone. Tilcon took over the nearby mine in 1979. That same year, the state passed strict laws protecting nearby watershed lands, like this one. Now, Tilcon wants to change that law. It says its main quarry is running out of rock, so it wants to mine here. In exchange, the company will donate open space to three towns, and decades from now, convert part of that mine into a reservoir capable of storing about 2.3 billion gallons of water. Tilcon officials declined to be interviewed, but in a statement, the company's president, Gary Wall, says the reservoir proposal will allow the company to continue to be a major employer while also making the region more resilient to the effects of climate change. Can we survive without this? Maybe. Do we really want to run that risk? Ramon Espanda is deputy director of New Britain's Water Department, which owns the watershed Tilcon wants to mine. During a recent public hearing, Espanda supported the idea, saying more water and more local control of it makes mining the nearby watershed worth it. We know that the scientists, the State Water Planning Council, the State Water Plan are telling us to create plans now to be resilient. Connecticut passed its water plan last month. It's an order guiding water management in a state which has recently faced some tough droughts. But the Water Planning Council, which wrote that plan, says Tilcon's idea doesn't fit. In a recent letter, it says a city commission study was pretty much inventing numbers to support Tilcon's idea, noting the report provides no documentation or analysis to substantiate its figures or the reservoir's need. Bad ideas like vampires just keep coming back. Peter Tersiak is a state representative from New Britain and a member of the Public Health Committee. He says Tilcon's pushed this idea before, about a decade ago under the administration of then-Mayor Tim Stewart. It was defeated, but now Stewart's daughter, Mayor Erin Stewart, is trying to bring it back to life. Tersiak says if a bill is raised next session, he'll fight to put a stake through it. The reason it would take legislation and things to be able to do this was it was made hard on purpose. It was supposed to be made impossible on purpose. Aaron Stewart, currently running for lieutenant governor, declined to comment, but in a 2016 letter to lawmakers said the risk of destroying watershed land was worth the reward. Even if a law were to change, Tilcon would need lots of permits. 
In an email, a spokesperson for the State Department of Public Health was blunt, saying testing at an active mine would be no easy undertaking, and that the department has no recent experience with a project like this. That's because Connecticut's last reservoir was built in the 1960s. Back on the trail, Kat Fiedler, a legal fellow with Connecticut Fund for the Environment, says Tilcon's resiliency and climate change messaging are actually masking what could become a broader threat to land across Connecticut. As much as the local impacts are absolutely disastrous, it's also scaling up. It can scale up to to a statewide problem very quickly um, if we set this precedent. Opening the floodgates for other private companies to potentially wring more profit out of protected watershed land. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Patrick Scahill in Hartford. This month, Vermont Public Radio's people-powered podcast, Brave Little State, answered the question, What is the deal with the New Vistas Foundation and its plan for central Vermont? That was question asker Jillian Connor from Tunbridge, Vermont. If you're living in the States, you've probably heard about New Vistas, a proposed planned energy-efficient community spearheaded by a wealthy businessman that would house some 20,000 people on 5,000 acres. The local towns around were pretty opposed to the idea, and by the end of June, the plan was abandoned. Now, Brave Little State tells the story of New Vistas and the effort against it in their most recent episode, Four Vermont Towns versus One Utah Developer, What Happened with New Vistas? Angela Evansee, the managing editor of podcasts at VPR and the host and creator of Brave Little State, reported this episode with Peter Hirschfeld. And Angela joins us now. Welcome back to the show, Angela. Hey, John. Thanks for having me back. Start by telling us who exactly David Hall is. So David Hall is an engineer from Utah. He's a pretty wealthy engineer. His fortune comes from developing and selling drilling technology. Um, His dad actually helped invent the synthetic diamond, which is now used in drilling applications. And a few years ago, he sold his business to an oil firm called Schlumberger. We don't know how much David Hall made on that sale, but he has said that at least $100 million of the proceeds were channeled to his New Vistas Foundation, which was bankrolling his efforts in Vermont. So what did those efforts look like? What did he hope New Vistas would be? The New Vistas community is a very specific type of community, and this was Hall's vision for what he wanted to create in these four towns in central Vermont. As you said, it would be home to up to 20,000 people on 5,000 acres, which is a much, much higher population density than these you know, rural Vermont towns. And it's designed to be a high-efficiency community with local agriculture and industry and also high-tech inventions from David Hall's engineering lab that would you know, help people conserve energy and live efficiently. So you know, we heard it described as an eco-village, an eco-utopia. And it's also worth noting that in Hall's vision, a single one of these New Vistas communities would just be a starting point. He saw this as a model that should be adopted all over the world. So why start this model in Vermont? So David Hall spent a lot of time in Vermont as a kid. He grew up in upstate New York and came here often with his Mormon family. They visited the Joseph Smith Memorial Birthplace. And Joseph Smith, of course, was the founder of the Mormon religion. And there's a big obelisk marking the spot where he was born in 1805. And thousands of people come here every year. And the place made a really big impression 
on the young David Hall. So this is where the story gets a little complicated because the Nuvistas community wasn't really David Hall's idea. In a way, it was actually Joseph Smith's idea. And so these plans for these communities came directly from documents that Joseph Smith drew up in the 1830s. They were called the Platte of Zion. And David Hall kind of developed this obsession with these documents. He said there were all of these hidden messages that you would decipher and figure out the ideal design for an ecological, sustainable community. So the specs of the New Vista's plan came from this plat of Zion, almost like a, a blueprint for this global vision of development that David Hall was trying to carry out. So it sounds to me like you've got the possibility that this is some sort of a religious community, the fact that it's going to be much more population dense than all the rest of Vermont, and the fact that you've got a, an outsider, a, a flatlander, as Vermonters uh, call them, coming in to want to change the character of their towns. I can imagine there was there was a lot of opposition. What were you hearing from people who, who didn't want this to happen? Yeah, you've definitely touched on the, the themes of the, the piece, for sure. Um, although I will say that by far the most sort of prevalent critique we heard from people wasn't an overt, you know, opposition to an outsider coming in or even the Mormon connection. Um, it's also worth noting that David Hall had said, you know, look, this is the inspiration for this plan, this design, but this community won't be a Mormon community. Everyone will be welcome here. Otherwise, how are we going to achieve global ecological balance? So really, the the most sort of strong critique to Hall's plan was that it was just not right for Vermont in terms of size and population density. I also heard people say that they were a little bit suspicious of David Hall. They couldn't quite figure out if he was being totally upfront with them. They thought maybe he might have had other intentions. So there was some suspicion and really a desire to maintain local control. And I really heard this from Malachi Brennan. He's a student at Vermont Law School in the area and had volunteered with one of the main opposition groups to David Hall called the Alliance for Vermont Communities. And here's what Malachi said. You have a guy with a vision and he has good ideas behind his vision. But people with, you know, good ideas that believe really strongly in them can be really dangerous. And I think he needs to listen to the people who have lived here and lived here for a very long time. And the reason that Malachi is a little out of breath there is I was actually talking to him while we were riding our bicycles. Uh, I went to a fundraiser that the Alliance for Vermont Communities held, a bike ride. So we were sort of riding and talking. Gotcha. Okay. <laughs> that explains that. Well, so David Hall, by the end of June, hearing all of this type of opposition, announces that he's abandoning his plan. What exactly changed his mind, Angela? Well, the opposition to David Hall had been quite active over the past few years. They had held rallies. They had held non-binding town meeting votes. They got the Vermont House to pass a resolution opposing new vistas. In early June, the Alliance for Vermont Communities announced that it had purchased a 218-acre property just east of the Joseph Smith birthplace, presumably so that David Hall couldn't purchase it. But the kicker was that in late June, the National Trust for Historic Preservation put out its 2018 list of America's most endangered historic places. And on that list, on watch status on the list, 
were these four towns in central Vermont, Royalton, Sharon, Stratford, and Tunbridge. And this watch status was something that the alliance had campaigned for. And according to David Hall, when he saw that national list, when he saw that he was on a watch list, basically, he decided just to give up. He said it was the straw that broke the camel's back. We talked to Hall the morning after he made his decision to basically abandon his plan and turn around and sell all the acreage that he had bought up. And he told us that, you know, he was obviously disappointed. He was impressed by how effective the opposition had been. And he said he would pursue his new Vista's vision elsewhere. It just made him sad that Vermont wouldn't get to be a part of it. The sad part for me is I don't think they realize the economic disaster and actually the ecological disaster that they're on track. The large rural sprawl systems that Vermont is currently promoting are, number one, not sustainable at all when you actually analyze it, but also not socially and economically viable. You know, to be so spread out and to have the huge high costs of the infrastructure, so only very wealthy people will be able to live there. How have people in the state been reacting to the announcement that there won't be a new Vestas and and some of what uh, David Hall said on the way out? Yeah, it was really interesting to get his kind of final take there. And, and actually, Jillian Connor, who had asked the question that kicked off our episode, told us that she totally could see where David Hall was coming from there. She was like, we are still figuring out a good solution for these rural communities. But that being said, you know, I think there was an incredible amount of relief on the part of the groups that had opposed this plan for all the reasons we've discussed and pride in the success of their efforts. But there were also some detractors who saw this as a missed opportunity for Vermont to be a part of something interesting and and potentially beneficial. One woman I spoke with is Joan Goldstein. She's the commissioner for the Department of Economic Development in Vermont. And she also sat on the select board of Royalton, one of these four towns, until last year. And she said she really had trouble with her community's response to Hall's ideas. Well, look, I I always think it's tragic when an opportunity to develop and create jobs and create vitality and prosperity in a community uh, goes away. That was also something that Vermont's governor, Phil Scott, said at his weekly press conference when David Hall had just announced his plans to, you know, pull out of Vermont. And Scott also said it was a shame that Vermonters hadn't been more welcoming to David Hall. But Paul Brune, who is the executive director of the Preservation Trust of Vermont, another group that had worked against David Hall's plan, really said it had nothing to do with intolerance. It was just the way that David Hall had come into these communities with a very single-minded vision. Without having a discussion with people um, and imposing a development idea or scheme on Vermont before there was an opportunity to have a dialogue, it's, it's important to remember that at this point in the process, David Hall hadn't even applied for any permits. Um, and so Joan Goldstein, whom we heard from earlier, uh, her, her main critique was that this was prejudged. Vermont has a really rigorous land use development law called Act 250 um, that was designed to assess proposals like this from a variety of angles. Um, And Goldstein's opinion was that that would have been an adequate way of determining whether or not this was truly an appropriate 
least sized, you know, development for Vermont. Angela Evans, he's managing editor for podcasts at VPR. Find the full episode of Brave Little State about what happened with New Vistas. Visit our website, nextnewengland.org. As always, Angela, thanks so much for joining us. I appreciate it. My pleasure, John. Coming up, the effects of Chinese tariffs on the lobster industry in Maine. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the John Merck Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate and clean energy. China has increasingly become a big market for Maine lobster. The Chinese middle class have developed a real taste for the lobster as a center of the plate protein, and that's kind of the lingo that they use. It's a wealth symbol for them. You know, they've made it, they've arrived, they've are able to afford something that in coastal cities are actually has become a little bit more affordable, but when you get more inland, you can have them go for as much as $150 or $200. That's Penelope Overton, a reporter for the Portland Press-Herald. We spoke with her about this trend back in April when the lobster industry in Maine was celebrating that they would not be affected by the first round of tariffs. But now Maine's lobster industry is in the crossfire of the trade war between the U.S. and China. Earlier this month, China more than doubled the tariffs on lobster from U.S. sources, leaving the industry in Maine uncertain about their future in the Chinese market. As Maine Public Radio's Fred Bever reports, lobster dealers who've seen sales to China shoot up over the last decade are now suddenly shut out. Michael Marceau watches workers pack lobster on the chilly floor of his southern Maine business, the Lobster Company. Until last week, up to 15,000 pounds of live lobster a day passed through this facility bound for Chinese tables. We were gearing up for a really big year. With sales of Maine harvested lobster to China this year triple what they were last year at this time, a renovation to increase the number of live lobsters the plant can hold had been underway. See that uncompleted section of pipe? Well, with that, when it was all done, we'd have been over 100,000. But we don't have to finish that now. That's because China's tariff on live lobster now stands at 40% and 35% on processed lobster. It's a major price barrier for sales to Chinese buyers who can get the same species from Canadian harvesters with only a 7% tariff. This is instant pain, a hand grenade. It's not going to be good. Steph Netto is Marceau's wife and co-owner of the business, which employs about 18 people while taking product from dozens of lobstermen up and down the coast and selling $13 million worth of lobster to China last year. I sell 50% of my lobsters in mainland China. We might live through this fall, we won't live through next winter. Some lobstermen think it's more of a problem for the dozen or so dealers who sell to China, and less so for harvesters focused on domestic markets. They are worrying about new restrictions on their bait fish catch and whether efforts to protect the endangered North Atlantic right whale could force expensive changes in their gear. But after aggressively developing new markets to help find a home for the record harvests of the last decade and prop up prices, some lobstermen are actually hoping that this year's haul pulls back a little. We're praying for a few less lobsters, I guess. So that will, if there's less, there'll be a bigger demand. Willis Spear fishes 800 traps from Portland's crowded waterfronts. I'm not a seance historian where we can figure out what's going to happen. We'll just take it a day at a time. Dealers are amping up efforts to capture other Asian markets and more American consumers too, 
But trade specialists say one task will be to maintain hard-won connections with Chinese partners and logistical pathways. Jeff Bennett is an analyst at the Maine International Trade Center. I mean, it's too big a market just to walk away from Asia for sure, and I don't think we can with China. He's hoping trade shows and personal connections will keep at least some of the business alive. But back at the lobster company, Steph Netto says her longtime buyer in China is sending her crying face emojis while forging new relationships with Canadian dealers. She says dealers here soon will be, quote, beating each other's brains in, competing to unload product that would otherwise have gone to China. And she has slim hopes for a political solution. I mean, this is stupid. It's like taking a sledgehammer to world trade. Neto says there will be times in the year when Chinese demand could outweigh the tariffs, but not enough to keep the business as it's been. And that, she says, will likely mean layoffs and could force her to buy fewer lobsters from boats the company's relied on for decades. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Fred Bever in Portland, Maine. But even as Maine's lobster industry is facing challenges, there's still something idyllic about the product. Maine lobster and, of course, the Maine lobster bake. Sabin Lomack grew up in Maine with his cousin Jim Salikas, and although they have since moved away, their childhood memories of simple homemade lobster rolls inspired them to start a business called Cousins Maine Lobster. It all started as a food truck that opened in Los Angeles, and they've since expanded to over a dozen cities, including Portland, Maine. Soon they'll be coming to southern Connecticut, and they've got a new book out called Cousins Maine Lobster, How One Food Truck Became a Multi-Million Dollar Business. Sabin Lomack joins us from their corporate offices in Los Angeles, California. Sabin, welcome to Next. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. What an intro. I'm pumped. <laughs> well, we're, we're really glad to have you here and, and, and glad that you could uh, join us from L.A. So you write in the book about the goal isn't simply to sell lobster, but it was to sell Maine lobster in the Maine way. So what exactly does that mean? What's the Maine way to you? Well, the Maine way is tradition. It's the best food, you know, the best lobster in the world, being kind to the people that frequent your business being authentic, being a genuine person. So when we opened the food truck, we had no food experience aside from me. And I worked in you know, several little restaurants throughout my life, but I never managed a restaurant. I never owned a food business. I didn't go to business school and neither did Jimmy. So the only thing we knew was uh, we went out to dinner a lot. And if the food was good, we'd come back. And if the hospitality and the service was good, we'd come back. And we need kind of both. And in Maine, you know, it doesn't need to be fancy but it needs to be very good. And, and it's great when the people know your name and they tap you on the shoulder and they thank you and they, they appreciate your business. So that's the main way. It doesn't need to be fancy, but it does need to be good. You do need to feel valued and appreciated. So when we opened our first truck and the windows opened up, we were out front talking to people, thanking them, shaking their hands. And so many people said, geez, I've been to so many food trucks. I've never met the owner. I've never been thanked. And for us, we were baffled. We thought, well, how the hell would you run a business if you don't thank people? Uh, and that's the main way. The the main lobster roll that you sell, you, you describe it as as something that is kind of like the, the Thanksgiving turkey sandwich. Explain what you mean by that. Yeah, I mean, growing up, lobster bakes were boiling pots of lobster and corn and potatoes and salad and beers. And, you know, what was happening is there was a lot of leftover lobster. And the lobster roll kind of originated when you had leftover lobster. You, you, you never throw out lobster. 
And so we got the kind of, you know, New England style lobster rolls, which are these kind of funky flat-sided hot dog rolls that you get from the supermarket. And you'd grill them up on each side and make them crispy and buttery, kind of like a grilled cheese, but the inside was still soft and really moist. You know, a little small bread, and you put in your lobster, this leftover. And some people added mayonnaise, some people added chives and a little lettuce, or however your kind of family did it. But that's what people did in Maine. And so just like Thanksgiving turkey, there's always leftovers. And, you know, you kind of have the sandwiches the next day, and maybe you make turkey soup or whatever your family does. Well, our family, and like most Maine families, made lobster rolls. And it wasn't fancy, it wasn't sexy, it wasn't trendy at all. It was just what we did in Maine. It's tradition to us. Mm. And uh, we wanted to replicate that. And it's it's not fancy, as you say. You talk about democratizing lobster, because in a, in a lot of the world, lobster is the really expensive thing at the bottom of the menu that you eat if you're on an expense account, but may, maybe you don't eat as a, as a daily part of life. But in Maine, where you grew up, it, it is a daily part of life. Talk about, about that, about how you're trying to bring it to people like a hamburger would be something that you eat every day. We've turned it and called it an affordable luxury. When you dine with us, whether it's at one of our restaurants or whether it's on one of our food trucks, it's an affordable luxury. Because previous to kind of doing what we do, uh, you would have to go to a fancy steakhouse. You would have to go to a very upscale restaurant and spend upwards to $100 just to get a lobster tail if you wanted to even sample Maine lobster. Or you'd have to fly 3,000 miles from L.A. or, you know, 2,000 from Dallas and go to Maine and actually experience it. Um, so we wanted to make it easy because that's how it is in Maine. And, and growing up in Maine, it wasn't fancy or fussy. I've, I've never gone out to a fancy lobster dinner in my life, and I've grown up in Maine. I've gone to local little kind of casual places or just my mom's kitchen. And so that's what we kind of wanted people to feel like. You were in a, in a kitchen. You were in my mom's house. You were, you were just casually having something that, by the way, is the best menu item in the world. It is a high-class item, and it should be treated as such because it, it really is. Okay, a last thing for you, uh, Sabin, and this is something that we've been talking about on our show since it started. We, we broadcast to, to listeners all over New England, and there's a lot of similarities between the New England states, but there's a lot of differences within the region. And one of those is that in Maine, as you suggested, that, that lobster roll that comes after the lobster bake quite often has mayo, maybe some scallions, but it's, it's a cold lobster roll, whereas in Connecticut some other parts... We make sure it gets into butter, and it's uh, it's a little different experience, a warm lobster roll. C- can you talk about that divide, and has that been something of, uh, of a point of contention as you've tried to sell lobster rolls all over the country? Well, as you said, in Maine, the Maine rolls are served chilled, um, traditionally with a little mayonnaise, and, and it's very simple. Two weeks before we opened our business, Jimmy, my cousin, called me and he said, hey, I heard there's a thing called a Connecticut lobster roll. <laughs> I said, what the hell is that? And he said, well, it's, it's, you know, they apparently warm the lobster up with a little butter and they serve it warm. And I was like, mm, let's put it on the menu. We'll keep it on for two weeks. If it, if it doesn't sell, we'll take it off. And we are six years into business. We have over 40 different locations. It is definitively the Connecticut Roll is our top seller at every location. Um, so before you get too excited, <laughs> hold on, hold on. Um, it is a bone of contention because you know most Mainers and or New Englanders, Maine, Mass, New Hampshire specifically, will come to the truck 
and never order a Connecticut roll. It's sacrilegious. Uh, if we suggest it, it's, it's, it's almost an offense. It's insulting. Of course they wouldn't want that. They, they want the traditional main roll. However, I'm sure people from Connecticut and New York and or people from other parts of the country that don't have that rich tradition, uh, <laughs> they love the Connecticut. And, and then it goes to like, what, what is your palate like? You know, I recommend to people, I say our most popular items are the rolls. Connecticut probably outsells the main. It, what sounds better to you? Warm with a little butter, chilled with a little mayonnaise, and it's depending on your palate. However, most popular menu item company-wide is the Connecticut lobster roll, surprisingly. So congratulations, Connecticut, people of Connecticut. You have done something which I did not expect, and it's confusing me still. We're, we're going we're gonna to play that in a loop down here in Connecticut. We, we love hearing that. I know. Um, I know. It's, it's crazy. <laughs> and, uh, but I'll tell you, to be honest, I like the Connecticut roll better. There I said it. Oh, Jesus. My mom's going to kill me. Saban Lomack co-founded a Cousins Maine Lobster with his cousin Jim. They're also co-authors of a new book called Cousins Maine Lobster, How One Food Truck Became a Multi-Million Dollar Business. You can visit nextnewengland.org for an excerpt. New Englanders can find their food truck in Portland, Maine. Soon we'll be able to find one in southern Connecticut where they make the lobster roll the right way. Saban, thanks so much for joining us. I appreciate it. Thank you. The executive producer of Next is Katie Talarski. Production help this week from Lily Tyson and Ali Oshinsky. Our digital producer is Carlos Mejia. Our theme music is by composer Todd Merrill. Hear more of his music at toddmerrill.com. Thanks also to Goodnight Blue Moon for their song, New England. The New England News Collaborative is funded in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from Douglas Stone and Mary Schwab Stone through the Smart Family Foundation of New York and the Melville Charitable Trust. It's powered by WBUR Boston, Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Radio, Rhode Island Public Radio, WSHU Public Radio Group, New England Public Radio, and Connecticut Public Radio.